It's a very compliant group here today. Look at that quiet. Hello again. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Andrea Hunt, and your event host. For those Maritimers in the crowd today, and I'm sure there are a few, I am a fellow proud Atlantic Canadian and executive member of the Canadian Club Toronto. I would like to extend a warm welcome to those of you joining us online at canadianclub.org. Our dynamic and diverse lineup of club events would not be possible without sponsor support. I'd like to thank our season sponsor, Canadian Bankers Association, and our official airline sponsor, Air Canada. Today's event is sponsored by Envenergy, Gowling, WLG, and TD Bank. Thank you to each of you for your generous support. Canadian Club Toronto regularly invites young leaders to join our events, and today we welcome students from the University of Toronto Political Science Program, uh, which I believe are over there on the, uh, on the high seats. Welcome. We are also proud to partner with Canada's Forest Trust Corporation in a significant environmental initiative, fostering sustainable forestry practices and connecting Canadians more closely with nature. Today we are not only compensating for our event's carbon footprint today, but also nurturing a green legacy for future generations. Thank you CFT for planting a forest and preserving it in our honour. I'll remind you that our events are not just for spectators today and can involve you as audience members, so now's your chance. What would you like to ask the Premier of PEI? There are some question cards on your table. Um, just raise your hand and we'll share them with our moderator. For those joining remotely, please hit the submit a question button on the right side of your screen and our team will be sure to collect them. Next, I would like to invite Patrick Beatty from Envenergy to introduce our esteemed guest today. Mr. Beatty, over to you. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to start off by saying thank you to the Canadian Club uh, for putting on this event today. I feel very fortunate uh, to be here on behalf of Invenergy to introduce not just one, but two uh, very distinguished Canadians. For those of you who haven't heard of us, Invenergy is North America's largest privately held renewable energy developer. Um, we focus on four key technologies, wind, solar, grid-scale batteries, and uh, high-efficiency thermal generation. To date, we have de developed 31 gigawatts of power across more than 200 projects globally. We've been active in Canada since 2005. Our Canadian head office is located right here in Toronto, and we are soon to be opening our brand new uh, office in Montreal. Invenergy has a large uh, development pipeline of projects across the country uh, that will help Canada meet its net zero targets and provide affordable and reliable power to Canadians. But there are no projects that excite me personally more than the ones I'm working on in our guest of honor's home province, the great province of Prince Edward Island. Invenergy has long been active in the province. In 2008, we were selected by a group of local landowners to develop at Skinner's Pond PEI uh, to develop a wind project there towards the most northern western part uh, of the island. This has truly been a community-driven project where the members of the local community came together to find consensus on how to chart a path forward for their future, which really gets at the heart of today's topic of conversation. Finding consensus on most things is practically impossible these days. As our country has become more polarized, it's getting more and more difficult to do the big and important things in Canada. 
And Canada will need to do a lot of big things if we're going to meet, reach our potential and address the major challenges of this century. Increasing polarization has meant that it's become harder to have conversations we disagree with. Often, opponents are treated as enemies, even though they may care about the same issues, but just have different approaches or solutions. At the end of the day, no one political party has a monopoly on good ideas, and people shouldn't be singularly defined by how they vote. And yet, why does it sometimes feel as though the tone of our politics is more divisive than ever? It's often thought that you can't be successful in politics by working with the other side, and that by collaborating or compromising with your political opponents, it's a sign of weakness. But our two speakers today prove that that isn't the case. Both have shown that there can be a better way to not only be successful in politics, but deliver results for Canadians. Our first guest today is the Honorable Lisa Raitt. She'll be joining Premier King for a conversation on polarization in Canada. Ms. Raitt is the Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking at CIBC Capital Markets. She was elected to the House of Commons in 2008, where she went on to hold three senior portfolios, serving as Minister of Natural Resources, Minister of Labour, and Minister of Transport. Most recently, Ms. Raitt was the Deputy Leader of the Official Opposition and the Conservative Party of Canada. After she left elected office, Ms. Raitt was the President and CEO of the Toronto Port Authority, before joining CIBC Capital Markets in January 2020. In addition, one of Ms. Raitt's current initiatives is as co-chair of the Coalition for a Better Future, an organization that works to find solutions to achieve a more inclusive, sustainable, and prosperous Canada. She co-chairs the organization with Anne McClellan, another prominent former member of parliament from another political party, which perfectly demonstrates the ability of people coming from different political parties to be able to work together to find solutions for Canadians. Lisa, we're thrilled to have you here today. That brings us to our guest of honor today, who has been described as a refreshingly different kind of politician due to his unique style of politics. The Honorable Premier Dennis King grew up in Georgetown PEI. Prior to politics, he worked as a journalist and communications advisor, as an entrepreneur and industry executive, and as an author, broadcaster, and storyteller. In 2019, he was elected the 33rd Premier of Prince Edward Island after forming the first minority government in the province since 1890. Premier King's first term was marked by successfully navigating major public events, such as two hurricanes, cyber attacks, an international trade dispute, and a global pandemic. Slow year. <laughs> Throughout his time in government, Premier King has adopted a collaborative leadership style that continues to this day, seeking input from all parties on key government policies, legislations, and budget investments. He even has been known to give credit and praise to his political opponents and predecessors from other parties. Earlier this year, his approach to politics was strongly endorsed by Islanders when his government was re-elected with a massive majority and more than 55% of the popular vote. Premier King, it's my honor to welcome you to Toronto and to thank you for your leadership. Your leadership style is a breath of fresh air that we hope is replicated across the country. Premier King, Ms. Raitt. I'm here, you're okay. there. Yeah, 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 yeah. At least that's how the lapel mics work today. <coughs> well, good afternoon, everybody. While, um, while we're getting settled here, I thought I mentioned we do have another former Premier from Prince Edward Island. Who's, he's looking at his Blackberry or his cell phone right now. So. But it's okay because of 
what your job is now. Um, but Premier Giz, it's lovely to see you here today as well. Robert Giz. So, Premier, we're supposed to talk about polarization <laughs> yeah. today, eh? I'm not sure you brought the right person in to talk about well, it. Well, uh, I'm going to disagree with you because you you did you had a polarizing <laughs> electoral campaign. You yeah. want to tell the audience what you did that caused so much so much strife in PEI? I don't know if they could handle it, but uh, <laughs> uh, we had a bus, <laughs> a campaign party bus, and it nearly tipped the island upside down politically. <laughs> uh, nobody knew. Why we had a bus, no one could understand that we would need a bus. And it probably dominated the first five or six days of the whole campaign of this, why would you have a bus? And well, my brother, as I told Kevin Ladner, my brother said, look at the size of his head, you can't fit that on a van, so <laughs> I had to get a bus. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, tells you a little bit about the political tenor in PEI though. Uh, it's not uh, a bad thing. Polarization of a bus, yeah. And I'm going to polarize the room right now by asking you a question that I asked Grange Pillay, the premier of Yukon, who is from Cape Breton, That's by right. the way. Yes. I asked him, um, are you a Toronto Maple Leafs fan? <laughs> and if not, why not? Uh, well, uh, I'm not. Uh, um, here we go. Polarization. So if this were a room of conservatives, I would be a liberal. I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan. Um, <laughs> Uh, mainly probably because they were winning all the cups when I was a kid and uh, my mother was a Toronto Maple Leafs fan and my brothers cheered for Boston so I had to go the opposite. Someone had to do yeah, it. Someone had to do it. And, there you yeah. go. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes our polarized <laughs> discussion today. There you go. Because we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about good things. We're going to talk well, about I've been a lot invited of good to the game today. tonight, but I, the person who invited me, I said, I, I just want you to know that I'm going to cheer very hard for Montreal. Is this okay? And apparently it is, so, yeah. That's, that yeah. should be interesting. Yes. <laughs> that should be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> Premier, you, um, you're noted as a storyteller, but before we get into the, the discussion of how great Prince Edward Island is, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, could you tell us what your best campaign story is? Oh, my gosh. Uh, many. Uh, uh, I, I wrote two books before I started about crazy stories that happened in my life, and I have material for two more. And you're signing books yeah, at the back uh, later? Yeah. I'm going to tell this story. It's not really a campaign story, but I, okay. my staff members are just going to faint when I tell this story. But <laughs> you have to have an appreciation for PEI, which I know many of you do. Uh, so when I was first elected, I went to the House of Commons and they gave me a standing ovation. So that's a pretty topical thing here in the last few weeks, I know. But they broadcast this on... Uh, they broadcast this on Compass, which is our supper hour TV show, CBC. And I got a call shortly after from my sister, and she was crying. And my mother had been aging, and I, so she was frantically crying on the phone. And said, uh, and I said, oh my God, what, what's going on? Is it, oh, we saw you on TV, oh my God, oh my God. They were crying, and they were so proud, and all these things. And so I come home, and it's... Uh, it's around this time of year, it's, it's, or no, it was Mother's Day actually, so we're gathered at my sister's place, and my mother, lovely, lovely, kind woman, but like most island families, we want you to thrive, we just don't want you to thrive too much, or think you're too... Too big. Too, too big. Yeah. So they started asking me about what was this standing ovation like, and of course I was taking every opportunity to blow this up, like you couldn't imagine what a great <laughs> thing this was. So she said, my sister said, did everyone get one? And I said, well, Nelson Mandela got one. And 
and me, as far as I know. <laughs> and my mother, who was very quiet and kind, and she said, if they knew you pissed the bed till you were five years old, they wouldn't be clapping for you up there. So if I was high, I'd get pretty low pretty fast. And uh, so, yeah. Gotta love moms. Eh? Yeah, yes. well, love she mom. was right. Don't get too big for your britches. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, having been to the House of Commons, um, what do you think? Do you ever have an interest in jumping into the federal side of oh, life? Oh, wow. It's a great place to visit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think I quite understand federal politics enough okay. to, uh, for me to have a comfort level in it, um, quite honestly. Um, in provincial politics, and Robert would know this, you have a direct line to help the people you're trying to help. And PEI is a small place, you know them. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a really unique and tremendous opportunity and gift. I just find the federal politicians, there are so many larger issues and the things that end up getting discussed while they do impact, no one really quite understands or has a more direct line of, mm -hmm. of helping that impact. So I, I, I don't know if that would be for me. I mean, you never ever want to say no, but I've been in politics now since 2019, and it's, 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 it's you know, reading off the, uh, the list of things we've been through. Uh, I, I think I've, I've done my time. You know, I, I think once we complete this mandate, we'll Ooh. see what happens. But I mean, yeah. I, I never want it to be a lifer in this business. Yeah. I, I'd like to leave with some, with some dignity. And, and kind of like my colleague Robert did, it's always nice to leave a job where they say, oh, I wonder why you're leaving, as opposed to... So I just, again, we're Here's back. Your hat, what's your hurry, you know? Back to uh, polarization. That's kind of what they did to me in Milton. So thanks, thanks for the memory. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. The premier was kind enough to call me after my yes, loss in 2019, yeah. and I really appreciated that. Um, I want to ask you about the economy and how's it going in, in PEI. Um, tell us a little bit about the diversified mm. kind of thing you're trying to do there with respect to the economy, because it's not just Anne of Green Gables and potatoes, yeah. as you told me at breakfast. Well, our potatoes and agriculture is obviously our largest industry for sure, and we'll be up somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, 1.75 billion in exports, which is largely comes from our potatoes and our agriculture sector. Uh, fisheries would be, would be number two, lobster, uh, mussels, and oysters is one of the great growth uh, industries in the country, I would say, post-COVID. The oyster production and consumption has really been uh, off the charts uh, to the point where we're having trouble supplying the marketplace uh, that requires it. So it's been really strong. And of course, tourism is a big uh, industry for us as well. But mm. we've diversified over the course, and, and many of my predecessors have led the way for this. But, uh, you know, we have a, an aerospace sector that's probably... Uh, in the vicinity of 2,500 or 3,000 employees. It was uh, converted uh, when the former government in the early 80s closed down the Air Force Base in Summerside. Uh, they converted that to, a, uh, to a, a sector for aerospace where we refurbish plane components, et cetera. And so that's been a big industry for us. We do business probably with 20 or 21 of the biggest pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. in the world mm -hmm. uh, through our bioscience sector, which is a, uh, they're aiming to have 3,000 employees by 2030, but we'll probably blow that mm -hmm. uh, projection by 2025, I suppose. Uh, we have an mRNA facility at BioVectra, which is making the next uh, uh, vaccines uh, that, that we will need from a health perspective. So we have a lot of really uh, cool things uh, going on there, and we're investing heavily 
in clean technology, which is uh, something that a lot of people in this room and, and in this city and in this country are really trying to, uh, you know, get an understanding of what we need to do, what are the problems that we need to solve as we try to clean our, our environment, and what are the economic opportunities that are in that. So we're building a clean tech institute. It's in partnership with Holland College, which is our technical uh, college, the University of Prince Edward Island, which has a climate change and adaptation uh, living lab in St. Peter's. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we're going to take the information in real time and try to apply that to the solutions. So there's lots of really exciting things going on at PEI. Mm -hmm. where our population is growing per capita bigger or faster than any uh, province in the country and has for the last four or five years. Now we're still just about 180,000 people, so it's not that... Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're growing to a point where you would take notice up here, but uh, it is a it is a fast-growing place where people want to be. And as we talked about at breakfast, mm -hmm. Lisa, that uh, post-COVID and really during COVID, people changed their thought process in terms of uh, where they work where and, and where they live. Uh, we have many, many, many Canadians now who are living in PEI or working in Toronto. Uh, a lot of people working for some of the big tech firms in, in the U.S., and they do it right from PEI. So it's, there's a lot of exciting things happening there, and I would encourage you to, to check it out and learn a little bit more uh, because it's, it's, we're proud of Anna Green Gables. Uh, we're proud of uh, Bud the Spud and all of those things. But uh, if, you, if you look under the wrapper, there's a lot more there uh, for us. So. so we're going to come back to Hurricane Fiona because mm -hmm. I want to talk about what lessons learned for PEI given the impact that it had. But I want to drill down a little bit on what you just said about in, inviting people to come and set up businesses. Mm -hmm. So in the past, people, companies, when they would come, when you're competing, I guess, around the world to bring some kind of business to the island, they would ask for a wage subsidy. Mm -hmm. Tell me now what's happening. Yeah, so I worked for former Premier Pat Binns, uh, and, and more specifically with uh, Mike Curry, who was the Minister of Development or Industry at that time. And when we would be recruiting a company to come to PEI, the first question they would always ask would be, what are your wage rebates? What are your tax incentives? What are you going to give me for us to help relocate there? Uh, and that proved to be somewhat successful, but, but really, once the money ran out, we saw a lot of companies seek other opportunities elsewhere. Now, just the way the labor market has changed, uh, the first uh, thing that anybody asks now is, number one, do you have access to skilled labor, or can you help me get access to skilled labor? Uh, and then they're asking questions like, are there childcare services for our staff if we're able to get that? Are they going to have access to quality healthcare or a doctor? Uh, and all of the issues that we're all dealing with in, in our lives, those are the issues now that all companies like yours and others are dealing with as well. So a company can't grow just based on someone saying, here's a per head incentive for you to come here. What they really want is to make sure they have access to services, access to airline service, for example. Like one of our large companies, BioVector, does business all over the world. And one of their big stumbling blocks is the connectivity to PEI, uh, to and from PEI for their staff and for their business partners, etc. Sometimes it's not easy to get to PEI. And so one of the things we have to focus on continually is improving that air access and that connectivity mm -hmm. to places like Halifax, places like Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal. So. Yeah, because you would notionally think that you can fly from Charlottetown to Halifax, but you can't. 
Well, you could pre-COVID, you can't now, and I know Air Canada is a great sponsor of this event, and I don't want to critique them, but that is a big loss for PEI, sure. because that's a connectivity hub internationally as well as to other parts of the country that we don't have. Now, it's a 20 or 30 minute flight, it's not a big flight, you wouldn't, as a general rule, if you lived in PEI and you were going to Halifax for the weekend, you probably wouldn't take uh, the plane to go. You would make the three and a half hour drive or whatever it is. But for the connectivity for business, for tourists, for others, that is a big, big loss for us. And we've been working as Atlantic Premiers, trying to find ways to creatively rebuild some of these connected. You're from Cape Breton. I am. I so am. the Sydney uh, airport will be yeah. dealing with a similar situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I understand as you were rebuilding back from COVID and all the challenges that there are with air travel, uh, you know, that, that you, you kind of have to hunt where the ducks are, and we yeah. understand that. But the, that is a big miss for us and something we need to, we need to correct yeah. and, and will help us grow, uh, you know, economically and socially as well if we're able to yeah. reestablish some of those connections. How's your broadband? Broadband is good. Uh, we're probably down to the last 4%. Um, I see the head of the wireless uh, group is here. Our, our, our cell service could be better, uh, uh, no question. But, uh, you know, we are working creatively uh, PEI is a great mixture of urban and rural. There's lots of places where there's three houses on the end of the dirt road. So if you work for Bell or Rogers or one of the big telcos, uh, making that investment to build the hardware to get it down those last uh, few miles is, is, is probably not a really good return on that investment. So government has tried to step in and partner to help. Uh, we kind of view it as back uh, when we were putting electricity into communities, for example, that government has to make that infrastructure investment. Or asphalt was a big thing in PEI, and it really changed the, the whole focus of life in, in, in PEIs when we were able to pave roads way back in the 40s and 50s, for example. So it's kind of the same where yeah. we're trying to have creative packages to work with all different homeowners and groups and, and businesses to make sure that they can have that connectivity. Yeah. But broadband is great. We got a little work to do in cell service. Okay, so you sit around the table of the Council of the Federation with mm -hmm. the other premiers and territorial, um, territorial leaders. Um, question from the audience, as the birthplace of confederation, how can PEI help us maintain our strong ties together? What's going on at the council? Are you, are you guys together? Are you apart? Do you work well? Well, it, it varies, obviously. Um, uh, it, this is, a, this is a, a big quilt that we've sewn together, this country, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the, the squares and the quilt uh, are, are connected by many things, but they're disconnected by a lot of things as well. Um, so I think generally, the debate on trying to get a sustainable healthcare funding agreement with Ottawa was a good thing for the Federation in general to be united on one uh, uh, issue, uh, for example. But, you know, it's obvious the, um, when it comes to other issues, for example, the, the uh, you know, equalization in Alberta is a lot different than equalization for Prince Edward Island, for example. So those are difficult conversations that we have to have. But I, I, I think that I've thought about it extensively that PEI was where we conceived this notion of this federation. And if people look to my style or whatever we want to talk about, so if, we, if this PEI can again be the place where we conceive this belief that we don't have to focus totally on what divides us, it's okay to disagree. If you disagree with me, you're not my sworn enemy for life, you know, that type of... So if we could conceive this again 
that that would be a great thing for, for PEI to continue to participate in, in, in the federation to that extent. But yeah. I, 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 you know, I think that Canada is, a, is the greatest country in the world. We all know that. Um, too much focus gets on what divides us. There's much more that unites us. Um, but I think we've lost some of the focus on what our jobs are, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And I think as a federal politician who became a cabinet minister, you, you care about the riding that elected you. Mm -hmm. And so you look after mm -hmm. to the best you can. But you also have a greater responsibility to participate in the building and growth of a country that yeah. sometimes might have a detrimental impact to some in your, yeah. in your district yeah. in a riding. Yeah. And I think if you look at the US and if you look at what's going on now in Canada, that there's no conversation to be held if, if your impact, if someone's impacted in your state or province or, or town or city, you can't have the conversation anymore. And mm -hmm. I think somehow we have to make our way back from that and understand that uh, you know, the, there's a greater sum of this that, that, that should require our focus. And, mm -hmm. and I hate to see us going down the road of mm -hmm. um, playing like these little one-offs uh, that, that I think are unproductive for the country in general. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there are still more willing and good people out there who, who want to focus on this. I really do. Mm -hmm. um, but our, our media has to play a different role, uh, not to be so adversarial and, and be playing up this. And those who are participating in the political process need to take a look within as well, I, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and, but overall, I think this is still the greatest country in the world. We Sure, we have challenges. So does everybody. But, uh, you know, what is this? pretty good place to live, work, and raise a family, I'd say, overall. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, but the loudest voices often get the most attention, and <coughs> PEI is pretty small. Yeah. So how do you lever your voice at the table to make sure that this kind of pragmatic approach is, is the one that will take hold of in the future? Yeah, well, a lot of it is probably building relationships, for mm -hmm. sure, and making connections. But, you know, I had the privilege of working with Pat Binns, who was... I don't think anyone would accuse Pat of being uh, overtly loud or obnoxious or anything. He was very uh, patient and, and, and would, was a great listener. And, and when he spoke, even though he spoke in a lower tone, people leaned in because he thought he had a, something, and he normally did have something really important to say. So I think that taught me that, you, you know, yes, the loudest voice might get on the news, but I think the important voices around the table are, are the ones who can make a constructive uh, you know, uh, point or, or, or lead us toward a conversation that's sort of bigger than if I win and I don't care if you lose type of thing. You know? mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, I think I try to sit around the table. I, I, I want to learn why Alberta is taking a certain position on something. I want to yeah. learn, like, I, I don't want to just turn on the TV and say, oh, there's a bunch of red-wing rabble-rousers, you know, mm -hmm. right-wing rabble-rousers. I, I want to learn as to why they feel this way. And I hope, when I'm talking, I hope that others feel the same way about why equalization is important. And it's not just taking money from someone and giving it to somebody else to waste, but it's, it's the sharing of the resources of a great country uh, that, you know, and so... There's a way to do it, I think. I hope I do it well. I think our, my predecessors did it well. I think PEI has always punched really well above our weight when it comes to accessing federal programming and dollars. And, and 
all of that comes from like we have a like Lawrence McCauley, who's our who's our cabinet minister in PEI, has been elected since 1988. Mm -hmm. He knows everybody from the commissioner uh, right up to the prime minister and who works in the office. And being able to work with that knowledge and that expertise and history and, and connectivity that he's made has allowed us to access programs that maybe would be harder to get. And mm -hmm. so I don't think there's any secret sauce to it. I think it's just. It's, it's make connections, make good points, uh, you know, uh, be a fair partner. Uh, uh, Doug Ford has been one of the greatest, uh, you know, uh, helpers for small jurisdictions in terms of accessing fair mm. federal programming. And uh, so I, I hope it works, but, um, it, but it's hard. Sometimes when, you, you know, if you sit around the table uh, and, uh, you know, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec are having a big conversation about something big, you also have to know sometimes that maybe this isn't my place to poke my nose in here. Uh, uh, so you read the room a little bit perhaps, you know, but uh, uh, I think those meetings and those opportunities are better for places like PEI and the Yukon, which you talked about, is when you just sit around the outside of the tables when all the official meetings are done and you build the connections, you talk about how we can work together and we share these, uh, uh, you know, we're doing this well or you're doing that well and uh, et cetera, but, yeah. you know. I don't, I don't think there's anything you can teach anybody in school or through political science as to how you would sit down at that table and try to get a little bit out of a big pot for yeah. something that would make a difference, but somehow it kind of, you know, yeah. it works out. So, so c can you give me an example of a federal program that seems to be built for the big guys that really <laughs> can't work in PEI and how you yeah. overcame the challenge? Yeah. So in the last... Uh, funding agreement, we had the ICIP program, the Invest in Canada program. There were five boxes, essentially, of, of, of where money would, where you would try to access money. And, and one of them was for um, uh, the conversion of rail and, and, and big uh, transit lines, et cetera, uh, to make them greener. Uh, for example, so there was this green energy type fund that was there which essentially every parameter that you looked at, there was nothing in PEI that could fit in that box. But underneath the program, they had earmarked like $50 million for Prince Edward Island under this program. But we did, we, there was no, we, did, we, don't have, we don't have rail, <laughs> we were building transit, but it's largely in Charlottetown, uh, you know, we're, we're expanding it a little bit now, but so we didn't have anything that fit in the box. Uh, and so we began the process to say, we have things that we want to do to convert, which will help us reach our shared goals of, of reducing carbon and, and, and et cetera. Uh, so we used that program after, oh, 18 months or so of pretty challenging negotiations. The politicians are easy to deal with. The bureaucrats, once they get in, involved, <laughs> yeah. as we like to say, they muddy things up a little bit by, uh, but uh, so 18 months later, we actually accessed that funds to begin the conversion of all of our provincially owned school buses to electric. So we're on the, we're about halfway through that now. By 2030, every school bus in PEI will be electric. And the, part, the, the biggest part of that will be in smaller communities like Murray River in the east or Alberton, for example, in the west, where a transit system doesn't make much financial sense to anyone who would invest in it. But we would use those buses when they're not taking kids to school in the morning or picking them up to take people to connect them to the larger transit route along the way. So it was a very creative way. 
to access money that the government earmarked for us, that they wanted us to have, that we wanted to have, but under the rules they wrote, there was no way we could get our hands yeah. on it. So, Yeah, it happens. So, it happens. Yeah. Uh, the greatest of intentions, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and nice to know that you had $50 million. Yeah. It well, just can't get to it. We're the only province, I must say, uh, that uh, fully subscribed to the funds underneath the infrastructure program over five years. Well done. Uh, the rest are still trying to access what's left or we'll leave a bunch on the table, but PEI has accessed every cent and we're waiting for the next one to it's start. because you're a bunch of farmers. Because <laughs> you have a lot of farmers well, on the island. We, we, need know. To, we need to get going. Yeah, we need money. You mentioned some clean tech. You mentioned mm -hmm. clean tech at the beginning. It's really important. Tell me how the University of PEI factors into clean tech. How important, how vital is it? Yeah, well, one of the first things I did when I was elected, uh, I, I got called to Ottawa by Lawrence McCauley, who, in full disclosure, I'm, I'm the progressive conservative premier. Lawrence is the liberal minister. Uh, he was the pallbearer at my father's funeral, who was a liberal poll chairman for 65 years. So politics and PEI is a little uh, interconnected like that. So I've known Lawrence my whole life. Lawrence called me and said, I want you to come to Ottawa to talk about a project. So UPEI had put forward a project where they wanted to build this center for climate change and adaptation in St. Peter's, which happens to be Lawrence's home community right on the North Shore. Uh, and he said, what I need from PEI is a commitment for $5 million. The federal government has $15 million, uh, and UPEI has the land and this, and we're going to build this. And what we want to do is to have a living laboratory where we study all of these issues around climate change, rising tides, uh, you know, uh, erosion, all of these different things where we can study it in real time and use that information to help us create solutions. Uh, which we have talked about. So, so some of the projects that they're working on, for example, we're a big agricultural uh, province, as I said. Uh, when you grow potatoes, you need to spray uh, uh, potatoes to keep uh, disease down and to keep uh, you know insects and stuff uh, uh, to the best you can. And we, for years, we just would drag this thing behind a tractor, and it would, if the wind was blowing, it would drift away. But now they're working with farmers in real time to where they will have a machine now and they will drive over the, the crops and it will determine with the computers and all of these different technologies, this plant here needs so much, this doesn't need any, this doesn't need any, this needs a little bit. And, and the, the science that is going into this, mm -hmm. it, it'll make farming more affordable, it'll make farming more reliable, there'll be less impact on the environment. And all of those things we're doing in this little community in St. Peter's where nobody would ever think this could be even possible yeah. to do it. But it, it's, it, it, and we have, uh, you know, countries from all over the world who are, who are coming here now to access these services. And I really think we have something really, really special here. And, and that's just um, one of the many things that I think where we can play a bigger role in yeah. some of these, you know, these many challenges that we all face going forward here. You know, someone's going to have to roll up their sleeves and figure out how to fix them and how to address them and how to deal with them. And, and we can yeah. certainly do that in PEI and we're doing it. Speaking of which, a lot of questions coming in, mm -hmm. uh, both talking about the impact of Fiona mm -hmm. and the aftermath, both in terms of impact. Are you building your infrastructure more resilient? What are you doing about land protection versus land development? Mm -hmm. What was the damage like in Fiona? And how are you managing it all? The, the <laughs> aftermath is significant. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, when this hurricane came, uh, it... It, the only way you could describe it is that it picked up PEI and flipped it over. That's the, the best way I could explain what happened. And then very few communities or areas weren't impacted in some way, shape, or form. We lost 
over half of our trees uh, blew down or are still uh, blown down. We lost, when I took a helicopter tour uh, a day later, we went up the North Shore, and the North Shore in PEI is famous for its, its uh, uh, sand dunes and all the different beautiful undulations and all that. And it looked like somebody took a snow plow and just drove straight down. There was just a sharp edge down that the PEI looked like it was squared off at the top almost. It was, it was heartbreaking to see, like it was devastating. Um, and uh, I, I think we all in PEI, I think we lost a little bit of our innocence during this whole mm -hmm. storm, you know. Uh, and, and, it, and it's changed us, and, and so we're trying to adapt. Our challenge is great because we're a small province with a limited land base, and we're an agriculture first province. We're dealing with the fastest population growth in the country per capita, and usually that gets built by sprawl heading out into these places where we farm traditionally. So we're trying to find this delicate balance to keep our farmland to grow to meet the growing population needs and to make sure we're growing in a sustainable way going forward. So we, we will probably see in the future where you will need to be a certain level back from the, from the cliff to build. Mm -hmm. uh, we will probably be encouraging building permits in those low floodplain areas to be a certain level of height. That, of course, brings added cost, mm -hmm. uh, and which isn't easy for sure. Uh, and these are some of the impacts. And we're going through, uh, we're developing for the first time in, in our island's history, a land use plan. So we're trying to really determine this limited resource that we have, how can we best utilize it? Yeah. Uh, and that, that will be, quite honestly, that will be a, one of the most painful processes we'll ever go through because people are very passionate in PEI about the land. Like this is, this is something that if you don't live in a place like an island like we do, the, the use of land is, is trumps all when it comes to political uh, hot potatoes, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this will be a difficult, but it's one we have to do. We have to find, have some kind of plan going forward that's built on the realities of what we're trying to be uh, and respecting of what we're going to be. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the environmental component of that, Lisa, is, is that for us, for you to grow potatoes, if you want a, a quick lesson on potatoes, you need to rotate the field every three or four years. So you will grow potatoes in a field one year, the next year after that you might grow hay, you might grow soybeans, and you might grow another crop before you get back to potatoes, for example. So for us to have enough potato land to grow the crop we need to grow to serve the markets that we need to grow, we actually need four times that much land mm. to do it effectively mm -hmm. and, and to do it in, in a way where the land can sustain uh, you know, yeah. the use. So throw that all into uh, everything else. It, it, it's probably one of the most challenging and difficult issues that we'll deal, I, I assume uh, our government will start it mm -hmm. and get it rolling, but I think successive governments after will need to continue to, to, to deal with it, to, to yeah. adjust it and adapt. And, yeah. But a big, 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 big challenge. But you still have some of the challenges that the bigger communities feel as well. Housing, mm -hmm. you mentioned it in terms of building permits. Mm -hmm. I mean, you still have issues with homelessness and you have issues with affordable housing. Um, any insight into the difficulties around affordable housing so that just folks understand it's not just the GTA that's experiencing this kind of yeah. hike in costs? Well, it's, it's everywhere, uh, for sure. Uh, as I was telling uh, you this morning, it's more pronounced in PEI because we're small and we know people. Uh, 
maybe if somebody in Toronto is unhoused, you don't know them. In PEI, we, there's a better than average chance we know them very well. So it makes that a very personal issue, and I think it really magnifies the issue in terms of how the media looks at it and how the public perceives it, et cetera. And it makes it really, really difficult to deal with. So our response in the initial stages was, I think like every government has tried to do, and that is, let's build as many places as we can, as fast as we can, to make sure people have a place to lay their head every night. And what we're finding now is, uh, the last RFP that we put out, which is closing in the next few days, for a 30 or 40 units social housing building, which is government-owned, uh, you know, uh, rent-deferred or rent-assisted property that government owns, we're looking at now uh, the cost that came in is $485,000 per door to build that, which is just out of... The, there is no market anywhere where that would be a sustainable approach going forward. I think that the challenge is there's a limited labor force which is stretched to the max right now which is building as much as they can build mm -hmm. uh, right now. Uh, our population, as we, as we said, is growing and the demand is there and I think government by being over aggressive, which we have been, we have now inflated the costs higher than we need to. We're finding construction firms are bidding on this work but they really don't need the work. They're busy enough and they can pick up other work uh, along the way. So they're bidding on this work in such a way that they're putting a price on it, which I will take it if it's worth my while, yeah. Yeah. but I don't need that project yeah. to be, have a sustainable business going forward. Yeah. So all of these things are kind of being magnified at the time. I, I don't know quite what the solution is. We, we've tried uh, to encourage the private sector, for example. We just put out our second... Uh, housing uh, fund, which we will allow private developers to access money at 2% interest rates uh, if they build or have shovel-ready projects ready to go, which are partially, you know, social housing or, or affordable units within that. Uh, so we put out $50 million first. That was subscribed like that. Mm. Our next round is closing, and there's $50 million on the table, and I think the projects are somewhere in the vicinity of $160 million of what people have put into access. So we're trying to be creative in how we approach this. Mm -hmm. um, I do think generally in my heart that overall uh, our province is better because we're growing and we're diversified and more people are coming and they're bringing uh, skills mm -hmm. and, and they're bringing a lifestyle that, you know, if you look at Charlottetown today versus in 1990, you would hardly recognize it. The face of it has changed and I think it's changed for the better. Mm -hmm. But the challenges that all of this brings with it yeah are immense and unfortunately although we live in a world where you just swipe left and buy something and have it delivered we can't build houses that way and we, we can't get enough of it done fast enough and governments everywhere have to be mindful of the fact that it wouldn't be the first issue where government tried to fix a problem made a bigger one down the road <laughs> yeah. by trying to fix it trying to you know yeah. too aggressively so complicated issue but uh, uh, you know we're, we're building as fast as we can build but we're still not able to meet the demand, and that, that's, a, that's a big issue for us. So you won 22 out of 27 seats yes. in the last election. Yes. 27 seats, by the way, is that's small. That's pretty it's small. It's a very small legislature. Pretty big. It's pretty big okay, when they sit sorry. around the caucus table. I'm getting there. Oh, I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> but your, how big is your cabinet? Uh, we have uh, me plus 10. Okay. And yeah, how many so, women? Uh, four. And has that made a difference in decision-making? Yeah, it is. And that's four, that, that's the most uh, women in cabinet in our history. 
We had uh, six elected, I think, Adam, this year. This, so there were six women successful this time in the election. And in a, four of them belonged, uh, five of them belonged to our party, which was mm -hmm. really uh, impressive to me. They're, they're very, very impressive people. Uh, Jill Burridge is our Minister of Finance and uh, just really, really impressed with the new energy. I, I, anyone who's been around government and you get, it, you get it to do it a second time. So the first time you kind of drive through this and it's like driving to a place you've never been before. You're looking at everything on the side of the road and you go, oh my gosh, there's the Eiffel Tower, you know, all these things and you're excited. But you get there after a while and then you, you kind of stop looking out the windows and you, you focus on, okay, we have to get down here and fix this or whatever. So I, I, f I didn't realize until we brought all of these new people in and this new energy and how important that is to look out the window because all of these new people who come into Cabot and come into caucus, they're all looking out there. They're like the space monkey going up to, in orbit for the first time. Like they're pressed out the window looking at all of these things that we have kind of forgotten about. So it's brought a great new energy and I think direction to the government. It's been very, very helpful to me. Um, but uh, I, I think that um, the women that we have in cabinet, I think are, are they're, 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 Strong, but I, I it ain't have to be. But I, th there's a patience to them mm. that some of my other people didn't have or don't have. Okay, and that has been very, very. I think it's been a breath of fresh air. Okay. around our table for Actually, sure. Actually, the yeah. question from the audience mm. was: Has that changed policy decision making in the cabinet? And you're saying it, it has. Yeah, it well, has. it has, and and it's changed also because so so we have subcommittees. We have Treasury Board. We have what we call the Cabinet. Uh, committee on Policies and Planning, and we started a housing uh, uh, subcommittee as well. It's been most helpful in there because Treasury Board, if you've been around for a long time, you don't want to give too much information that can be dissected before you come to the meetings, uh, and ministers get terribly defensive about the files they bring forward. By changing the makeup of these committees, now everybody just has a different approach. So mm. you don't just come in and say, I need $15 million, don't ask me any questions. Now <laughs> it's kind of like Dragon's Den. You get torn apart in there a little bit. And I think that's, that's for the that's better. You know, thing. That's for the better. And it, and it just comes from a place of uh, people want to understand. They have a respect for taxpayers' money. Yeah. And you, you, know, you have to ask these questions. Why are we doing this? Why didn't we do this before? Is this the only way to do this? And these are hard questions sometimes that need to be asked. But yeah, yeah it's changed uh, dramatically, I think. Last question from the floor. What's the best hidden gem in PEI? Wow. Well, I, I, okay, well, there would be many. I would say that if you are a culinary uh, person, I would say uh, the Inn at Bay Fortune, the feast with Chef Michael Smith is probably, uh, I don't think there'd be anything in PEI that we would do any better that would give you a glimpse yeah. of what PEI is all about to give you an appreciation for the food and for the, for the land and for the sea. Uh, there's a lovely place down in Point Prim called the Chowder House. If you ever want to just drive down a dirt road where you think you're going to drive into the water and then sit down and have the best bowl of chowder you could ever imagine overlooking a magical lighthouse looking over the Northumberland Strait, it's, it's most impressive uh, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Georgetown, so I think Georgetown is a small little New England type town. It's very walkable. That's a fun place to be. But uh, And the other place where... During COVID, when we couldn't travel anywhere, and we had the Atlantic bubble, yeah. uh, uh, if you were from the region, you could come, and if you weren't, you weren't allowed in, and it was the most horrible time to ever be premier. Um, 
but we looked around and we explored things that we took for granted. Uh, my wife and I went to the West Point Lighthouse mm. and stayed there for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And I, look, I've spent most of my life in PEI. I love it. I'd like to think I know every inch of it. I didn't even know there was a road down off the road to get down to this place, this magical place. Uh, and we loved it. Uh, there, was, there was an old guy who would come in and tell us stories and all these things. It was fabulous. And just as a little side note, they used to do 85% of their business was with European travel. Oh, neat. So they lost that with COVID. And they picked up all of this local business and all of this uh, uh, Canadian and, and, and American travel, which is the basis. So now they have never been busier wow. because they brought these things together. So that's one story that where, where the pandemic tore us apart, but it helped there. So. And to go to the Bay Fortune, you kind of need Toronto money. Yes. Well, it, it's <laughs> worth it. It's worth it. It's, it's worth it. Just to, it's worth it. Just to give you the warning ahead. <laughs> yeah. Premier, it's been delightful. Oh, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank and you. enjoy the hockey game tonight. And I'm sorry that you guys are going to lose. Well. Goodbye. Thank you. Just gonna, you can't get away without any thank yous. Just a few thank yous. Ms. Raitt, uh, Premier King, thank you so much. Thank you for what was a thoroughly engaging and entertaining conversation. I think you will all agree. Um, Want to thank you for taking the time to share your stories, many of them, your perspective on PEI, and really so much more. You reminded us on the importance of focusing on what unites us and what divides, which is what we need in the world these days. But your passion, your pragmatism, your creativity, and profound modesty is nothing short of inspiring. The one thing you are not modest about is the formidable contributions of PEI on the global and the national scale, and for good reason, as we heard today. It is clear the people of PEI have elected a true champion. So get ready. Based on all these stories, there's going to be an influx of more commerce and visitors to your shores. So get ready. I'm wishing you all the continued success. So thank you. Not yet. Not yet. No, thank you. Thank you. And Ms. Ms. Ray, thank you for, uh, please, just the incredible moderation and just the engaging dialogue. Um, it, it takes okay. two to tango, and that was fabulous to watch. Thank you, thank you so much you. for all you do. Um, members and guests, before we conclude, I want to invite you to some of our upcoming events. Next week, Wednesday, October the 18th, the President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, Goldie Hyder, will be at our podium. And on Thursday, October 26th, we will be hearing from Ontario's Minister of Indigenous Affairs and Northern Development, the Honourable Greg Rickford. Please visit our website for more information. And of course, thank you um, to our AV supplier uh, and our presenting sponsor, Invenergy. Thank you. Enjoy your day. Thanks so much.